Hey, what's up and welcome back, storytellers. Notice something different about our format? To celebrate our four-year milestone, one of my best friends, Mickey Shaloa, gave our podcast jingle a makeover, and I'm so lucky because he so happens to be a ridiculously talented musician and music producer, and on top of all that, he's a super handsome actor and voiceover artist. Thank you so much, Mickey. You are the best. Storytellers, I cannot believe 88 Cups of Tea turned four years old this month. It blows my mind that we've consistently produced podcast episodes all this time and over the years have organically grown into an online platform publishing essays and articles from some of your favorite authors. And throughout this time, our community is growing steadily as ever. We now even have a tiny and very mighty team who I'm so grateful for and honestly would not be able to stay sane or get some sleep without their incredible work ethic. A massive shout out and thank you to Rachel Colbert, Story Long, and Andor Sperling for your dedication and keeping the engine running here at 88 Cups of Tea. I truly have the most wonderful team and I am so lucky. Now for our community, the amount of love and support that you all have showered us with all these years and especially this month has been overwhelming in the most positive way and we really could not have reached this four-year milestone without you. You subscribe to our show, you hit the play button and hundreds of you took the time to leave ratings and reviews. You visited our website and read the articles and essays. You joined our private Facebook group and cheered each other on. You signed up for our newsletter and engaged with our digital love notes every week. You told a friend, you spread the love. All you, thank you so much for four amazing years together. Let's go over the upcoming deadlines for ringing in our four-year anniversary as a community. First up, Monday, August 26th at 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Write and publish a blog post to let us know how 88 Cups of Tea has been a part of your life. Send us your published post by the deadline mentioned just a little bit earlier, either by tagging us on social media at 88 Cups of Tea or emailing the link to us at hello at 88cupsoftea.com. We'll gather your links and create a post on our 88 Cups of Tea website that'll feature a consolidated list of your URLs to link back to your sites. I've been reading your blog post so far and thank you so much to each and every one of you who took the time out of your day to do so. Now the next deadline is Friday, August 30th at 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We reserved a special something for our Patreon family. Four super storytellers get the chance to interview for their own 10-minute segment that will be stitched to the end of an upcoming podcast episode. Patrons who'd love a chance to get picked will need to fill out an online form by the deadline. You'll find the link in our latest Patreon post. Now our last and final deadline is on August 31st at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Join me for a live stream celebration from the comfort of your own home. Have a cup of tea ready, unwind with fun chats, and get ready for a chance to win some prizes. I wanted them to be meaningful for you and your storytelling, so we have prizes like signed copies of books from our most popular podcast guests of the year like Madeline Miller, Samantha Shannon, and our upcoming guest, Jason Reynolds. We even have some of your favorite literary agents like Susie Townsend and Tao Lei joining in on the celebrations by gifting their time with prizes like a query critique and a query of the first five pages of your manuscript. To be considered for a chance to win, you'll need to RSVP your attendance to our live stream by heading over to 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash fourth dash birthday. And that's spelled out F-O-U-R-T-H dash birthday. And lastly, you'll need to be present at our live stream and actively engage in our comment section to be considered for a chance to win. I am so excited to continue the celebrations with you and can't wait to hang out with you for our live stream on August 31st. Before we jump into the introductions, I hosted a spontaneous 88 Cups of Tea meetup in LA this past Sunday and had the best time with our storytellers. A warm thank you to Jennifer Chen, Satchel Buck-Jones, Melody Simpson, Bridget Paulson, Karen Draper, Madison Story, Robin Schneider, and Cassandra Barnes for showing up on short notice and making it such a wonderful weekend. For all of you who wanted to make it but weren't able to because of scheduling purposes, don't even worry about it. I'm sure I'll catch you in the next meetup, but know that your presence was missed and we can't wait to meet you the next time. 
I loved meeting our storytellers face to face and learning more about each other. Here is a fun recording of a few of our storytellers from our meetup. It was a bit of a surprise that I sprung on them. So we didn't have everyone jumping in, but I'd love for you to hear from those who did. Hi, I'm Melody Simpson. I write YA sci-fi, and you guys listened to my agent, J.L. Sturmer's episode a while ago. So yeah, that's what I'm working on with her. Hi, I'm Cassandra Michelle, working on um, my debut novel, which will hopefully be the fantasy YA I'm working on about a queer queen trying to figure out what kind of ruler she wants to be. Hi, I'm Jennifer Chen, and I am working on a young adult contemporary fiction novel about a young Asian-American actress who is shot in a school shooting in her face and is coming back to acting and figuring out her life after the shooting. Alrighty, storytellers, I hope to meet more of you in future meetups. And now on to today's guest, Madeline Miller. Madeline is the New York Times bestselling author of The Song of Achilles and her most recent critically acclaimed novel, Circe, which is currently being adapted for an eight-episode series for HBO Max. In our conversation, we dive deep into how Madeline fell in love with Greek mythology and found her passion to craft strong female characters in classical settings. We discuss how crucial it is to change the narrative by creating the core of strong female characters, what to do when facing setbacks in your writing process, and strategies to lure out new ideas for your stories. Madeline also shares advice on crafting a seamless narrative when the plot has gaps and how leaning on your characters can help you create smooth transitions. Further into our conversation, we discuss the importance of finding your support system and creating a research process that works best for your voice. Madeline and her team at Little Brown and Company shared an excerpt for the first 1,000 words of her novel, Circe, just for our storytellers. Make sure to head over to her show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash podcast slash Madeline dash Miller to download this exclusive content. Okay, now let's jump right in. Oh my gosh, everyone, we have Madeline Miller with us today. Madeline, how are you? I am so well. Thank you so much for having me on. We've all been so excited about this conversation. It's been a long time coming because I know a lot of people have been asking and requesting and begging to have you on the podcast. So we're all so pumped to finally have you on. I'm so excited to get started. So why don't we just kick it off with how you first fell in love with storytelling, your very first memory, dating as far back as possible. I know it's hard. (laughs) Sure. First of all, thank you so, so much. That's so kind of you to say. And I have a couple really early memories. One of them is my mother reading to me. And in particular, she read to me little pieces of the Iliad and the Odyssey. So I have a vivid memory of Achilles grieving over Patroclus, for instance, in one of my memories of her reading to me. Odysseus, Penelope, these were sort of characters that were that were in my mind, and I, I loved them, and I became obsessed with the Greek myths. But actually, one of my first kind of earliest storytelling memories was, once again, my mother had been reading to me. And she was reading to me, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. And we were reading it at bedtime. And bedtime came and we had sort of like two chapters left. And my mom was like, okay, we're going to put it down. We'll finish the last two chapters tomorrow night. Don't read it under the covers with the flashlight after I leave. And I had this thing of like, what? You can do that? I didn't know. (laughs) So of course, I immediately just had the opposite of my mother's intended effect. I immediately pulled out my flashlight and fixed the covers. And that was the beginning of a long, long history of me reading late into the night (laughs) under the covers with the flashlight. And also signs of a very intelligent daughter, by the way. (laughs) So FYI, I love those kind of kids. First of all, huge credit to your mom for being an incredible mother and introducing stories to you at such a young age and also having that opposite effect of inspiring you (laughs) to read under the covers late at night. I mean, how old were you when your mom started reading these stories to you? You know, I think she she edited out, you know, the Iliad is full of a lot of gore and exploding brains and coming out. And so, um, Whenever you, if you read the Iliad in Greek, you learn all the vocabulary for like the internal organs. So I'm pretty sure she edited all that out. (laughs) I remember the Cyclops being pretty gory. I'm not sure how much she edited that 
But one of the things that I find really interesting is that we teach Greek myths and myths in general to children, because as you say, they are incredibly adult and often frightening and disturbing. You know, they're in just Greek mythology, I can think of stories about bestiality and, you know, and it's it's the type of story that I feel like it's amazing when I'm reading sort of a Greek myth book with a younger person like my daughter, and I know sort of like what's really happening in the story, but they've just sort of done this like glossy lacquer over the top. <laughs> so I think my mom did edit, but I also think that it's just sort of this funny thing in our culture that we sort of are like, oh, myths, those are for children. Actually, I think they're, uh, what drew me to them was that adultness, as I sort of felt like I was getting a sneak peek into what the adult world was really like. And that was part of what was so exciting about them. Was this something that stayed with you throughout your growing years through middle school, through high school? Because I know for me personally, I was even telling my girlfriend, I was like, wow, it wasn't until Madeline's book that it made me realize how long ago that I stopped reading these tales and these myths. And I used to be obsessed with them, but then you sparked my love for it again as an adult. I took a little bit of Latin in middle school and then I stopped around 12, 13. So for you, was it something that was constantly ongoing or did you revisit it in your own way, kind of like me through you? Well, first of all, thank you. I'm so that's so lovely to hear. I sort of loved it straight through. I mean, I was also reading a lot of other stuff that had nothing to do with classics, but I did love it pretty much straight through. And I had some very bad Latin teachers early on. I mean, they weren't bad people. They were just completely uninspiring and dry. And I kept going, even though every year was more boring and deadly and <laughs> than the last. Um, and eventually I hit a great Latin teacher who, you know, all of a sudden sort of, I was able to fireworks started going off and all this love that I'd been carrying was able to kind of connect with the literature. So finally that happened. So it was, it was something that kind of kept going. And then I think there was this really exciting moment when I realized I could spend my whole life studying the Aeneid. I could spend my whole life studying the Iliad and the Odyssey and grownups are allowed to do that. Mm -hmm. So I immediately wanted to kind of go into that. And it was always the literature that, that really drew me. I loved the poetry and the mythology, the tragedies, as well as the epics. Lyric poetry too, it was that more than, for example, the political history, although that's plenty interesting. But for me, it was always, it was always about the language. And I think what I most wanted to do with it is I is I kind of wanted to talk back to it because as much as I loved it and I found it really exciting, a lot of these stories and a lot of these ideas, I was also, of course, particularly as a woman, very aware of how much disturbing stuff is in these stories. Mm -hmm. And these are rape narratives or assault narratives, how often sort of attacks on women are treated as like light comedy, mm -hmm. things like that. And so I, at the same time that I was so drawn to it, I also wanted to push back against it and sort of say, you know, let's not pretend that this stuff isn't here. We have to talk about it. We have to talk about the fact that Odysseus kills these 12 women in the Odyssey who are his slaves, who had no ability to defy the people that they were dealing with. So I think both those impulses were present, both to sort of dig myself into these stories, but also to question the stories and, and to feel like to really want to interrogate them and feel that I was seeing them honestly. This is something that I find so powerful in that you were able to come to this realization on your own. And the thing is, with these Western classics, especially epics, right, it's always centered around men. From what I recall, there's nothing else out there that gives a glimpse of the woman's perspective and also is through the male gaze. It excludes a lot of women's stories and our realities and our truths. So it's funny that I didn't really notice that as much until your book came along. But for you, do you remember when was that exact moment where it clicked for you and just started to see it? Yeah. 
it sort of happened gradually. There are a few sort of more female-focused works in the ancient world, like Medea or some of the other tragedies, but of course, those are still composed by men. Mm. So we're getting sort of men's opinions of what female characters would do, which many times is very flattening, very stereotyping. So yes, it's very hard. You know, we have a few poems from Sappho, the great poet that Plato called the 10th muse, but her corpus is basically in tatters. We don't have anything that's, you know, really complete. And so there's so much missing for her. So even this this wonderful female poet that we do have, we have her not even fully. So I think the reason that I saw that is, For one thing, my mom, my mother, again, had worked for NOW, the National Organization for Women, and she had a lot of books in the house that were sort of focused on feminism and talking about equality and sort of bringing up stuff like, you know, objectifying women. And and I basically would read my way through those books. I don't think my mom knew I was reading them, (laughs) but I was definitely reading them. You know, I was one of these children that read anything, any book in my orbit, whatever it was. And so these were there and I read them and I definitely, you know, that sort of went in and it was something that I thought about. And then at the same time that I was in high school and taking Latin and reading the Aeneid and learning Greek and reading Homer, the writers that I was reading were Isabel Allende, Amy Tan, Laurie Moore, Atwood, Toni Morrison. It's these, you know, super, very strong feminist contemporary writers. And so I feel like sort of those two things coming together somehow (laughs) helped me to see that. And it was also, I think there was a touch of the fact that this was not true in high school, but when I, I went off to college, I was very often the only female in my classes or one of sort of one of two you know, and and the majority of the class would be male. And so it was also sort of feeling that sense of dislocation where we're reading these texts, we're not talking about this stuff. Are the people in this room with me, do they even see what I'm seeing? Or And they're just not talking, they're waiting for me to bring it up? Or what's happening here? This is a really weird dynamic. So it was also stuff like that that helped me to bring it out. And I think I had this very early, actually very strong experience with Circe, where I had been really excited to read the Odyssey because of the Circe episode. I was like, oh my gosh, there's a witch who turns men into pigs? exciting, you know, and she isn't punished for it by the end of her story. That's also really exciting. You know, she lives on an island surrounded by lions and wolves. It was exciting to see a female character like that. And then you get to the actual Cersei episode and it's so constricted. She, of course, immediately has to be tamed by Odysseus. He pulls his sword on her. She falls to her knees and begs for mercy. She's very objectified sexually. And she has to be kind of shrunk down to fit inside his story. And the whole episode is about him and sort of how she serves him. And I was so frustrated by that. I was just, I felt like it was such a missed opportunity. I am very curious how you were able to then flesh out Cersei to the point where she's this incredibly powerful, self-made woman, seeing everything from beginning to the end, how much strength she's had, how much intelligence, and how much bravery and courage, especially surviving on an island alone. How much was research? How much was imagination? Well, one of the things that I tried to do is to sort of take that Homeric episode as inspiration, but not to be tied to it totally. And I think actually Homer is kind of inviting that in that episode because it's actually narrated not by the narrator of the Odyssey, but by Odysseus himself. He is telling the story of the Circe episode. And so as soon as you sort of realize that, you realize, oh, wow, a lot of this stuff that he is, you know, Odysseus is the great liar of ancient literature. Why are we believing him at all? So let's, you know, not only do we have Circe through sort of the traditional male heroic gaze, but also through Odysseus's agenda to try to make himself look good. So that kind of helped get me situated in sort of thinking about her. There were some things from Homer that I found very inspiring. The description of her as a dread goddess who speaks like a human was very important to me. I didn't want her to kneel to Odysseus as she does in the story. So that was something I pushed back on. 
I, I sort of tried to look for some clues in Homer, things like I found it very interesting that at the end of her time with Odysseus, when Odysseus says, OK, I'm ready to leave, she says, fine. And she has no sort of moment of, oh, please stay. Oh, I've fallen in love with you. None of that is there. And so I thought that was interesting. This is a very independent person, a very private person. And also I feel like that's catching her at this moment with Odysseus that is interesting too. She shows herself in the episode with Odysseus, if you're kind of reading between the lines, to be quite insightful, certainly very powerful, very knowledgeable. So all of those were things that went into it. And then there are a few other Circe sources that I looked at, which provided inspiration, although I didn't exactly draw on them completely. So one of these was in Ovid. And Ovid tells the story of Circe and Glaucus and Scylla, that love triangle where Circe does something horrible to Scylla, which if you know the myths, you will have guessed what it is. <laughs> so in that description of her, what Ovid says is Ovid describes her as having a temperament that's more fitted for love than other gods. And he's referring to like sexual romantic love. But to me, that sort of mortality, though speaking like a human and having a temperament more fitted for love, those to me felt like the same thing. I, I don't think Ovid was alluding to Homer, but I feel like I felt a novelist's connection there between those two ideas that she has the ability to be more human than most gods have. I think one of the other things about developing her character is just making sure that she is able to make mistakes. I think there's this tendency right now when sort of crafting the so-called strong female character to either have her be a complete like falling down mess or sort of so perfect that you can't really even believe that that's a real person. And I didn't want to go in either of those directions. I wanted Cersei to be a person who makes mistakes and has to live with those mistakes and hopefully learn from those mistakes, but also a person who is trying to do better. And that to me was really the core of her personality is this desire to always do better, try harder, think more carefully and more deeply. And, and that was a part of her personality that I guess just came from me. It was something I found very appealing about her. But I think I was inspired by the fact that she does invent witchcraft and that witchcraft is so different from divine power. You know, she is the first witch sort of in our, what we establish as Western literature. Mm. I didn't know that, by the way. Yes, it's very interesting to look. And you can see a lot of kind of witchy things in the portrait of her. She has the animal familiars. She has, you know, spells and potions. And it's her powers are derived from herbs and from the earth. All these kind of echoes of, of later witches. But the key thing to witchcraft is that it is work. It isn't something that you can just sort of blink and it happens. You have to have skill and you have to have knowledge and you have to have dedication. And so a character who would be able to thrive in that type of discipline was very appealing to me. A majority of our listeners here are budding writers, uh, many of them between 25 and 34 years old, uh, mostly women, especially who are reconnecting with their love of writing. And a lot of times... I'm hearing from the community is that they've dropped their love for writing and then would dip back in and then rediscover their love because of work, life gets in the way. And sometimes the project, their work in progress takes about sometimes three to up to eight to 10 years, which I say, hey, as long as you're still chipping away at it or thinking about it, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. For me, I'm a slow reader and a slow writer. And I say it's, you know what, it makes things more delicious that way. So for you, how long was your process? For both my novels, very long. Song of Achilles was 10 years of the actual writing part. Although you could say in a sense that I had been researching it for another 10 before that, <laughs> you know, just thinking about it, mulling over, learning about Greek mythology. And same thing with Circe. Circe was seven years, but that's just the writing, you know, not sort of that long lead time of me being able to read Homer in Greek, for instance. So I am like you, I'm a slow writer. And I sort of simultaneously wish two things. One is that I wish I had known that that is normal. And that I think there's this sort of 
feeling that if you are really good at something, you should be able to do it quickly and easily. But that is really not the case with writing. Writing is one of those things where the more you think about it, the deeper you go, it's only going to improve the work. And sometimes the other thing that I I wish I had known is sort of this idea that it's not always going to be a linear progression. And I think things like National Novel Writing Month are wonderful kind of tools to get people started. But I think that they can also be a little bit misleading because if you focus on sort of number of words written in a day or number of pages written in a day, you know, sometimes the number of pages written in a day is I deleted 50, but those 50 needed to go. So actually that's progress, even though it seems like I'm deleting. So sort of to to get too much into the numbers, I know that can help some people. And if it does, great. But for me, that was always very unhelpful because I felt like sometimes I need to spend all day on one page and that's okay. That doesn't mean I waste a day or a failed day. That's just what I needed to do with that. So that don't be afraid of setbacks. You have to go through them. Every writer does. Margaret Atwood has a wonderful quote where she says, you know, if you find you've taken a wrong turn, don't sit down in the middle of the road, (laughs) you know, go back and retrace your steps. And I, I think that's very true. So I would just encourage people to, to keep at it. If the story is still gripping you and the characters are still in your mind and you can't get rid of them, they're just there, you know, they've taken up residence, you have this passionate thing you want to say about them, then don't give up. It takes however long it's going to take. And probably that simmering time will only make it better. Oh, I love that. Thank you for the permission, Madeline. I think there's something about our psyche just going into writing. It's a lot to do with psychological perspective. It's always so helpful to hear from those writers that we look up to and admire to say that and to know that you are able to come up with something like a masterpiece and knowing that you appreciated and respected the time that you took, allowing things to marinate and season. I like to think of things with food. Yes, absolutely. And you know what, if you have to, I feel that for Song of Achilles, I did delude myself along the way that the way I got through writing it, I was like, well, I'm just, I'm almost done. It's going to be next month. I just have to work a little bit more in this one scene and then the whole thing is finished. And so I said that, you know, every month for 10 years. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) And so sort of having this feeling of like, I'm almost finished was, I guess, how I psychologically tricked myself into, I'm glad I didn't know at the beginning that it was going to be 10 years. (laughs) And those types of tricks are okay. Yes, I was going to say it's actually very positive. I just imagine myself on the treadmill with a piece of delicious dumpling hanging in front of me. And I'm just, (laughs) I just keep going. You know, you just don't know, but you just keep going. You just need enough energy to fuel you through. That is so helpful. Thank you for sharing that. And this has taken 10 years for Song of Achilles, seven years for Circe. Was this separately or were, were there overlaps with Song of Achilles and Circe, I, I had to completely finish. And in fact, part of the reason I think Circe took me so long is that I was. it took me a while to let go of Patroclus's voice and his perspective. I had lived with him for so long that it took me a while to kind of write him out and say goodbye and sort of come to terms. And I wasn't even thinking of my next book. In fact, I had finally finished the copy edits. I turned it in the book into my editor and she was like, so what's next? And I was like, oh my gosh, I have to do this again. But then as soon as I I sort of had that thought where I was like, oh, I'm going to write another book. Cersei was there. And it was as if she'd sort of been waiting the whole time. But I had no idea that she was waiting (laughs) when I was working on that. Now, with Cersei, I had a little bit of a different experience. At the same time that I was working on Cersei, I am I do have this Tempest project, which is inspired by Shakespeare's Tempest that I've been thinking about. And it's also Shakespeare's Tempest, of course, also touches on magic and witches and islands. So I took a little break from Circe for a couple months, maybe six months in there and worked on the Tempest and then came back to Circe. And that sorted me out. Whatever the problems I was having with Circe were suddenly I was like, I untangled those two projects were a little bit tangled up and I untangled them and was able to go ahead. So I also think it's okay to have, to work on two pieces at the same time. Sometimes it can be nice to have, you know, if you're feeling really frustrated with one piece to have another piece. Although I think 
from what I have observed with many writers, when you get into that final stage where you're really writing super intensely and you're sort of heading for the end, usually it's kind of one project at a time. But in the development stages, I think a lot of people kind of have two that they go back and forth between. Oh, okay. That is really helpful. Right after you finish Song of Achilles, your team asked, okay, so what's next? And you're like, whoa, I have to do this again. Another (laughs) 10 years of each month. He's saying I'm almost done the next month. (laughs) And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, boom, Cersei appeared. How did that appear? How were you able to, I guess in a way, conjure her up? I mean, talking about witchcraft, I love that. (laughs) Conjure her up. How were you able to, I guess, coax her out? Yeah. So my immediate response, I hung up the phone with my editor And I was like, I really want to explore a woman's perspective because I feel that there's so much sexism and so much misogyny in these texts. And my sort of next thought was all the women die at the end of their stories. (laughs) They all have these horrible stories. And then I was like, but that's not actually Cersei doesn't. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've always wanted to write about Cersei. And then my brain was like, don't forget Penelope. And so (laughs) immediately sort of Cersei and Penelope, who were these female characters that I had written about, you know, from an academic standpoint and thought about a lot from an academic standpoint, were kind of waiting in the wings that I knew I didn't want to write a story about I mean, I think so many of the female characters are are hard to write about for that reason. You know, I would love to write about Cassandra. I think she's such an important figure. She's the Trojan who is cursed to always tell the truth but never be believed, which I think a lot of women have that experience even today. And her story, like basically all the other women, ends in, you know, horrible death. And I wanted a female character who somehow is able to escape this death grip that male storytelling has had on these female characters. And one of the things that I had done, thinking about Cersei academically, which I think was kind of all right there waiting for me in, in that moment, is the fact that Cersei actually feels very un-Greek in the Odyssey. And there's some speculation that her roots are not Greek, but they're actually Anatolian and Turkic and, and Eastern. So she is more coming out of this tradition of goddesses like the Magna Mater, the Great Mother from Anatolia or Ishtar, those types of goddesses who are often called the Potniotheron, Mistress of the Beasts. And so her power actually is a little bit different. And I think that's why she's able to get away with what she's able to get away with is because she's coming out of this sort of other tradition. And she feels very strange in the Odyssey. She feels very unusual and and singular. So that was interesting to me. And I think part of also what I was thinking about and what drew me to Cersei was that I, I love that she was an artist you know, that not only her weaving, but also her witchcraft, that this is that she is passionate about. And I feel like we don't talk enough about women's passion for artistry and for for their art. And so all of that was sort of there. And then what I did once I was like, Cersei, really? Am I going to write about Cersei? Oh, my gosh. Because I don't know, that felt very surprising, but it felt very like, yes, I am. But I'm so excited. I haven't even thought about this. Oh, my gosh, there's so many things. So I sat down at my computer and I was like, I'm just going to write a scene. I'm just going to pick a scene. And the scene is, and like the scene that came to my mind was Daedalus is showing up on her island and she has to go back with him to see her sister and they have to get past Scylla. And that was sort of the scene that popped into my head to write. So I wrote that scene and it underwent many, many, many revisions from the time that it ended up in the book. But that was actually, I almost never write out of order, but that was an exception. For some reason, that scene was my way into into Cersei. That is so interesting where it's also knowing within that story you were sharing that you do very much write in chronological order, basically, for your stories, do you sit down and just kind of go from chapter one through the end, an exception to that little scene that you were talking about just earlier? Or are you very much a, you know what, I'm going to go down and write a treatment from chapter one through the end, and then I will go in and flesh in page by page by page? So I have an idea of where the story is going. And I knew there is a Cersei myth out there where We don't have the whole thing. We just have a summary of it. It used to exist as an epic. But where Cersei 
marries Telemachus, Odysseus's son. This is all kind of a spoiler, but I didn't do this. I didn't go with this myth. And Penelope marries Telegonus, Circe's son with Odysseus. So there's like this weird son swap thing that happens. And then Penelope and Telegonus and Telemachus are all made gods by Circe and they all live happily ever after as gods. That seemed completely wrong to me. And I just had a visceral reaction and I've learned to sort of trust that kind of visceral reaction when I, I sort of have like a, in theater, I, I also have a background in theater and they often tell you go where the heat is. And I feel like that's very true of writing that my immediate response is like, obviously not. And then, and then I'm sort of like, well, let's interrogate that. Why not? And so my brain was like, well, first of all, I don't think Telegonus is straight. Second of all, I don't want Penelope to have her story end with what man she's attached to. Third of all, I don't think Cersei's story is about moving towards the gods. I think it's about moving away from the gods. And so I had like within that visceral reaction, I actually had all these reasons for it. So, you know, to dig into if you have sort of a very negative reaction to something or a very positive reaction to follow that. Because for me, all my writing comes out of my passionate engagement with the material. And so I can't ever write a version of the myth that I'm not interested in. For instance, there is a myth in Ovid about Cersei turning this guy into a woodpecker that I was just like, cut. I guess I that one. <laughs> Um, and, you know, because there was no heat there for me. That was just not an interesting story. And I'm sure someone could tell it in a really interesting way, but I'm not that person. So giving yourself permission to follow those impulses. Another thing that I was really obsessed with from the beginning is this brief mention in a summary we have of a myth about Circe of her arming her son with a stingray tail spear. And just fixated on that stingray tail spear. And I was like, I'm so interested in that. What a cool weapon. What an interesting witchy weapon. Like, how does that work? What did they think about stingrays? And the scene where in the myth, it's just a regular stingray, how she comes to get that tail in my book ended up becoming one of the most sort of important passages of the book. And it happened because I felt that there was something there. And so I kind of leave myself scenes like that along the way as I'm structuring it. So I'm like, I know Penelope's waiting for me. I know the stingray tail spear is waiting for me. I know that the Minotaur's birth is waiting for me. And so I have these kind of touchstones, but I don't always know what order they're going to come in. And I certainly don't know how Cersei is going to get to them. So that's the stuff that, but I think it does help to have a few of those kind of things that you're aiming towards on the horizon. Ooh, that is so helpful. All of this, when this is all happening, I cannot help but wonder because when I was reading through your bio, I was like, oh my gosh, Madeline is so accomplished. How on earth does she have all this time in a day to get all of this done? Real talk? It's tiring when you're balancing a job and coming home and then pursuing another career, which is your writing, your love of creativity. So how was that for you? It was very tricky. And I think it is very hard, particularly if you have a job that is emotionally very taxing, which for me teaching was. So I was teaching and I would come home at the end of the day and I would still be thinking about my students. I would have grading to do. You know, I would be kind of mentally preparing for lesson plans the next day. I was thinking about the five students I'm worrying about in my class or the sometimes it's way more than five and sort of what I need to be doing to help support them. And so there's all this kind of emotional work that my brain was doing. So I couldn't really sit down and do that emotional work with my characters. It was sort of like I was tapped out. So I had to accept during the time that I was teaching that I needed to wait for the weekends. I needed to wait for the holidays. I needed to wait for the summers. I mean, that's one of the wonderful things about teaching is that you completely wrung out during those. <laughs> but then you get to the summer and you, you have this time. And I would work these huge days. I would work, you know, 16 hour days when I had the time. And so I would also kind of try and check in with the work. Even if I, I wasn't doing active writing, I would just sort of think about it. I would try and think about the characters, touch base with them, kind of keep that alive. If a sentence came to me, I might jot it down, but I didn't try to write every day because I knew that I just couldn't. I was too tired. And so sometimes that is the case. Anne Padgett says there are times when you're writing and there are times when you're living. And those aren't always the same times. 
then got a little bit sort of when I had finished Song of Achilles, I was no longer teaching for Circe. And so that was nice. I had a much more regular schedule, which was helpful. But also, I think that even times when I was very busy, like when I was in school, myself going to school, I would say, well, I have half an hour. So I'm going to spend half an hour every day, even if it's just half an hour and I'll cut myself off after half an hour. But, you know, I think half an hour is an amount of time where you definitely can scrape that up out of other bits of your day. You know, you can cut off, you can wake up a little bit earlier. You could go a bit later. I could turn off the you know, surfing the internet, (laughs) all those little sort of time wastes. I feel like if you trim those, you can find that half an hour. And that times when I couldn't do more, that half an hour still helped to me to keep a grip on the story. Oh, so good. And it's obvious that you're very creative, you're very imaginative, but how did you become such a damn good writer? (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. That is very, very kind. I I am a firm believer that in what Zadie Smith says about this, which is that if you want to be a good writer, the best thing you can do is to just read and to read absolutely everything and as much as you can, because I think all writers sort of learn from each other. And in my early, you know, when I was writing also in high school and I was reading Laurie Moore and I would sort of write the bad version of a Laurie Moore story. And I was like, oh, I'm practicing. That's what I'm doing. It's sort of like how oftentimes painters will sort of paint like their version of masterpieces as sort of a way of practicing technical skill. And I felt myself sort of trying on different styles and none of those pieces worked because they weren't actually my style. They were sort of me practicing and I wasn't doing it on purpose and I wasn't doing it sort of systematically at all, but I would read Tennessee Williams for an entire three week period. And then I would end up, my characters would be talking like Tennessee Williams. And so things like that, sort of immersing yourself in authors and allowing yourself to kind of like a jungle gym, you know, practice that. But again, it wasn't something I did systematically. I think it was just something that happened. I love poetry and I read a lot of poetry. And I, in fact, I often start my writing day with reading just a poem, usually almost at random, sort of from poets I like or from, you know, I have a big anthology and sometimes it helps to just kind of turn to a random page and read whatever is on that page. But I feel that what poets do that's so extraordinary is each word has to bear so much weight. If we're talking about a house, each word is load bearing and it has to be doing two or three different things at once. It has to be chiming in all these different directions. And I think I always want to try and and remember that, you know, I don't write poetry, but I want my words to carry as much weight as they can and to remember how potent words can be. And that oftentimes they're more potent. If you don't use three adjectives, you just use one, but you find the perfect one. Yes, yes. If you don't mind, may I squeeze in three listener questions? Yeah. Thank you. Desi Bekirova said, yay, I love Madeline Miller. Cersei was truly a masterpiece. My question is, Cersei flows really well. The prose is lovely and reading it is such a joy. So does Madeline have any tips or techniques she uses to make sure that story transitions seamlessly from one act to another, even when there are big time jumps involved? Mm, That's a great question. And I think there I have two answers. One is about voice. So I always writing from a character's perspective, I really like to do first person narration, because I think it allows you to really live inside a character's mind. And so part of that, that long time period, it takes me to learn how to write a book is me trying to hear that character's voice and really hear it fully and understand who that character is. And I have to try a lot of different sort of registers and a lot of different things. So partially, I feel like once I find that voice, the character will kind of lead me in that direction for how those transitions happen. Because I try and think about how would they want to tell this story? How would this come out of them? How did they 
see time. And that was actually something I thought specifically a lot about with Circe because I wanted her to see time a little bit differently as a goddess, as someone who has lived for many more years. And so transitions, you know, I wanted sometimes long time periods to pass in a very short amount of text space and then the opposite as well. So that is one thing. The other thing is just to read it and read it and read it. Sometimes reading it out loud can be very illuminating that you'll catch things reading it out loud that you wouldn't catch if you're just reading it on the page. And I think you will start to pick up on those things. I I feel like I have to mention here my secret weapon, which is my husband, who is always my first reader. And I think every writer needs one good reader who is honest with you and who says, this isn't working for me. This isn't working for me. Just kind of a fresh pair of eyes. And sometimes it's, it's a little bit like sort of you have to find just the right person. And some people will not give you helpful feedback. And some people will try and tell you how to fix it. Beware of readers who try and tell you how to fix it. Their job is to just tell you this is a problem. And then your job as the writer is to fix it. So having a reader can help with that stuff about like, this is going too quickly, this feels too slow or something like that. Oh my gosh. Okay. That is the best secret weapon ever. So thank you for that. Do you mind me asking, is your husband very well read or does he have a degree in, in anything related to creativity or he just reads a lot? Um, he is a huge reader, but okay. his, his degree is in English and specifically creative writing in English. Oh, get out, Madeline. <laughs> I just have the biggest smile on my face. This is the best team. I feel very lucky. Is he working on his own books as well? Because then he's lucky to have you as his like critique partner. Oh my gosh, is he kidding? Yeah, he is. We have kids. And so he has been sort of letting me go first. Oh my God, you guys are so hashtag relationship goals. Stop. (laughs) For a long time, there was this sort of almost like a curse that I feel like people laid on women writers about, well, you can't have kids if if you want to be a writer. I guess you can't if you don't have anybody supporting you at all. You know, if you don't have a partner, if you don't have a support system, but you know that the key to being able to be an artist and have children is to have a partner who is doing their share. (laughs) There we go. Preach, Madeline. Thank you for that. (laughs) How many kids do you have? Do you mind me asking? I have two of them and they're eventually they'll go off to school and I think the time crunch will be a lot easier. But yeah, I think it's just important to have a partner in your life that you can communicate about all this stuff with and and surround yourself with people who support your work and who believe in you, whether they're a partner or whether they're friends. I feel like that is really important, you know, not people who are going to kind of look at you and say, she's never going to finish that novel, or that's a dumb idea, you know, but people who are going to say, that sounds really interesting. And then what happens? Or I can't wait to read it. Or even just, just feeling that support from people around you, I think can make a difference. Okay, so Madeline, I'm going to wrap this up with combining those last two listener questions into one because it sounds kind of similar. So Jennifer Alice Provost asked, my question is all about research. What was your primary source material? Your depth of knowledge goes way past Bullfinch's mythology. (laughs) And the last question from Megan Cleveland, which is kind of similar to Jennifer's, is as someone with a similar classics background, I would love to know how heavily is Madeline influenced by the original Greek mythology when she writes. I know when I am working on my classical retelling, I look out for epithets. Does she do anything similar? So my primary sources are definitely the ancient poetic texts themselves. So the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, Ovid, you know, whatever is sort of appropriate for that particular topic. I do a lot of secondary research, secondary source reading. I love to read commentaries. I'm a real nerd about this. I find it really interesting to hear scholars arguing over Homer and over these original texts. And usually I end up agreeing with one side or the other side, or maybe I have a third side. And that is very inspiring for me. I also do a lot of material culture research. So I do a lot of research into the physical objects of the world. And most of that doesn't even make it in the book, but it's the type of thing where if if she's walking and she passes a snake, I want to be able to see what that snake is. I want to be able to see what this dagger looks like. What does the jewelry look like? How are people wearing their hair? That's the type of stuff that helps me to build the world more specifically. So in that case, I'm, I'm turning to archaeology for stuff like that. 
And then in terms of the second question, I think that you can be successful writing very close to myths or very far away. And I don't think you have to, what's important is that you stay true to your vision of what, however you want to, you want to interact with these texts. So you can decide how you want to do that. And I like to write fairly close to the texts. I also like to sort of have a genre that's in mind. When I was writing Song of Achilles, I knew it was an epic story, but I really wanted to write it in kind of a lyric style. And lyric poetry in the ancient world is specifically the poetry of friendship and love and daily life. And so I knew I wanted that was sort of associated. And with Circe, women have traditionally been shut out from epic. And so I wanted to give Circe the opportunity to have sort of an epic scope for her story and to be writing, you know, a story that would traditionally be considered domestic in an epic setting. I do think about that type of stuff. And I think that it's whatever inspires you. If there are epithets that inspire you, go for it, but you don't have to to draw on them. Sometimes little things like that can spark a big thing. I in Homer, Circe's brother Aetes is described as Aetes whose mind is bent on ruin. And that was very inspiring to me for the character and thinking about, well, what would that be like to be someone who has a brother whose mind is bent on ruin? That would be intense. And just be honest with yourself about what it is that that is drawing you to it. For me, it's always the psychology that I want to understand the psychology of these characters. I want to treat them like real people and say, okay, if these are the five things that they do in the mythology that resonate with me. What is the type of person that would do those things? So there's no right way and no wrong way. And one of my favorite adaptations is Anne Carson's Autobiography of Red, which is so beautiful and strange and should not work, but completely works. (laughs) So you just have to do it your own way. And if you want to sort of model yourself on the language of Homer, then do it. If you really don't want to model yourself on the language of Homer, then really don't. You know, I think both those can work. There's no inherent goodness in it, only that you follow what you're passionate about. Please let listeners know where we can find you to say hello and thank you for your time. You can always drop me a note on my website. I am very slow to respond, so please don't take it personally. If I don't respond for six months, you can also find me on Instagram and on Twitter as well. Thank you for such great questions. Thank you for having me on. This was really a treat. And that wraps up our episode with Madeline Miller. Madeline, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and insights into Greek mythology, crafting strong female characters, finding your voice, and so much more. You are such a joy to chat with. Thank you again for your time. Listeners are truly going to appreciate all the advice you spilled. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in. As always, be sure to drop by and say hi to Madeline on Instagram at madeline.e.miller and on Twitter at Madeline Miller. Don't forget to head over to Madeline's show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash podcast slash Madeline dash Miller to download the first 1000 words of Madeline's novel, Circe. You'll also find all the resources and books mentioned in her episode, along with the tweetable quotes and the timestamps of highlights throughout our entire conversation in case you ever want to rewind and re-listen to your favorite part. If you loved our conversation, I would be so grateful if you could head on over to Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button. If you have the extra time, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a rating and a review. Your support helps our show become more visible to new listeners. And honestly, every bit helps to get the word out about 88 Cups of Tea to help our community grow. And thank you so much in advance. Have a super productive week and I'll catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that. And in case you miss us, be sure to head over to our website at 88cupsoftea.com to read all of our essays and articles written by some of your favorite authors. 